You're listening to the Hotard Huddle Podcast, presented by me, Michael Hotard. Check it out as we dive into sports, movies, music, TV, and more. This is the Hotard Huddle Podcast. Bring it in. It's time for the Hotard Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hotard, back here for episode five. And today's episode, I am joined by my buddy, Kyle Carrier. Now, Kyle and I kind of come from very similar olive branches. We're both colonels through and through. And we both went to school for journalism, spent our lives preparing for that and wanting to make it as a journalist. And we both fizzled out. But that's okay, you know? We're happier now. So today, he and I are going to talk a little bit about colonel football. Um, We're going to talk about journalism and kind of... Some of the issues that we faced uh, during our time in the industry. And uh, Kyle is also a high school football official, so that's pretty cool. And I'm really curious to talk to him about that today. So with that being said, my buddy Kyle is here. And uh, Kyle, man, I appreciate you coming on the show. No problem, man. I've been uh, listening to every episode you had on so far. And when you asked him to be on, I was pretty excited, so... Hell yeah, man. I'm happy to have you on. But uh, first and foremost, I mean, let's address the big elephant in the room. The Colonels yesterday, now by the time this releases, uh, they have already played probably uh, a second game at that point, but we're recording this. And just yesterday, they notched a big win against Central Arkansas at home, their first home game of the season. Unfortunately, I was not able to make it, but you being down the street from Nichols, I know you were there, I know you were uh, having some fun, and I know you're happy about the Colonels getting that first uh, home victory of the season, man. Absolutely, man. Let me tell you, it's, uh, it felt like forever for the boy to play home, and when you're walking around campus, the vibe you get is just like the sigh of relief that you finally get to play the home game. You can just feel the energy in the air, and the home crowd, as always, was packed because that's what Reboy does. He brings the fans. The, the visitor side was fairly empty, I think, because they knew what was about to happen to them when they walked into that stadium because we showed up on fire. Uh, UCA had a bye week to prepare for us, and yet they, they, they got to run out of the stadium, and um Chase, you know, he did best. He had over 200 yards in the first half. And from that point on, I mean, it, that was just – that game was out, out out of question after the first quarter, in my opinion. You could see the demeanor of their team change. Our team was pumped up, and they just rolled through that UCA yesterday. And that's always a tough game for them. I mean, I remember the four years that I was working there, and well, let's let's paint the, paint the picture here. Nichols was not – what it is now you know Nichols is a powerhouse in the Southland Conference when I was there we were lucky if we got a win a season but UCA used to kick the crap out of us man and uh you know for them to play both both nationally ranked teams heading into the game so for them to notch that win and you know capture that first home victory that's uh number 10 in a row for Tim Rebo and his home record is outstanding and part of that reason is that culture you just mentioned. You know, you and I sat through a, probably dozens of games where there was barely a lick of a soul in the stands. Yep. It was it was literally a couple of students and the parents of the players. That was it. Now, the first game that I went to during the Tim Rebo era, 
was homecoming during, I believe, his first, maybe his second season. And, dude, it was a packed house. And from them, it's just sort of taken off. He's clearly the right man for the job. You're looking at the best coach in Nichols history. And then you pair that along with probably the best quarterback in Nichols history. It is a fruitful era for the Colonels and a hell of a time to be one. Absolutely. And I tell you what, like you stated, you know, when I was in school, I was lucky enough to be a part of that 05 season when they actually won the conference. But then after that, from that point on, there wasn't much to cheer about. And I remember a time I did to literally look at LSU's schedule and have their games around their schedules just to have people go to the games. But now it doesn't matter. Now you can have a game at the same time without that shoot, people will still show up. I mean, Rebo's one of us. That's the biggest difference. He's not an outsider. He's one of us. He's out in the community every day. He worked his first year he worked a drive through McDonald's. I, I was mean, actually gonna mention that, yeah. I mean he's he, he made it a point to go out and reach out and connect with every single person in the nation and I think that goes a long way. Charlie Stubbs never had that relationship he was an outsider nobody really felt like he was welcome it was just a really weird circumstance but Rebo came in it's like night and day and the biggest thing about him he recruits Louisiana I think maybe 95 of the 99 players are from Louisiana he got that that picket fence around the river parishes which as you know if you can do that you can pretty much win championships and that, that that's the biggest difference well, yeah, man. I mean, with Charlie Stubbs, and there's no love lost for me because I, I mentioned this to Grant Ordoin when he was on the podcast. We were talking about this. I have no love loss for Coach Stubbs because he personally right. did a lot for me. He was a good guy. But right. two statements can be true that you could be a good guy but not the right man for that particular job. Nichols is exactly. not an easy job by any stretch. You're in no. you're in BFE of South Louisiana. You are down the bayou. It's tight-knit communities. If you don't fit that mold, it's tougher to win. And then right. you mentioned the recruiting side of it. I was talking – I talked to Rush Gisclair a couple of years ago who is, I believe, still on the coaching staff there, uh, played during the uh, Coach Stubbs era. He was a running back for the Colonels at that point. Yeah. And I wrote a story about the way Nichols has sort of – broken into the mold of being one of the premier programs in the Southland Conference. And we were talking about the recruiting side. What a lot of these smaller D1s do is they recruit a lot of JUCO guys. They get transfers. They try to get these bigger names that sort of fell off the wagon at some point or another. Well, what Tim Rebo has done now, while he has still taken some of those names... What he's doing, he knows he's in the prime state for NFL talent. And I'm not just talking college talent, but he is in the prime spot for NFL-type talent. You know, the River Parishes dominate dominate in football. So what he's doing is he's essentially taking all the casts off from these great programs like the Destrahams, like the Hanvilles, like the East St. John's. He's bringing them in. And he's letting them fill that program. He's going to his own backyard, so he doesn't have to go far, and that's the biggest difference. Instead of a guy maybe going to UL, well, guess what? Now they may be coming to Nichols, and he recognizes that being at UL before Nichols. So Rebo is unbelievable. I know you and I go back and forth on Facebook with, of course, the uh, the Rebo facts all day. Yep. 
But the truth of the matter is, I don't know that there is a more perfect mold for a coach than Tim Rebo. And I'm not saying that lightly. I mean, I think it's absolutely 100% true. Absolutely, man. I mean, just the attitude now, like now you walk into that stadium, he expects to win. When they went play Georgia two years ago, they walked in that stadium expecting to beat Georgia. And before, you just walked in hoping to survive. Right. And and that rubs off on your players. That rubs off on the community. And one good thing is whenever you recruit these local talents, they're bringing their families to the game. So that's more people coming to the stands. And it, it all goes full circle. And that's why we have such a great atmosphere now. It's like all these kids from the river and New Orleans and everywhere else is from, they all got a, their whole entire families coming to the game. They're tailgating, they're hanging out, and they're making a great college football environment. If you got a kid from Texas or from Mississippi or from Florida, kids with all their parents may come to a game or two, but they can't come to every single game. Of course. Whereas here at Chase 4K, he got his dad, his entire family, all of them, John 4K, all of them come to every game to watch him, and it, it goes a long way, too. Well, you know, you mentioned the big programs that Rebo's played uh, with with Nichols thus far. You know, he scheduled games against uh, Georgia, Texas A&M, Kansas. Uh, this year, Kansas State, now they got the tar knocked out of them in that one. But prior to that game, you look at Georgia, A&M, Kansas— there were one and two in those games, and the margin of victory in those two losses combined was twelve points, I believe. And that's only because the Kevin Sumlin yeah, scored a late right. touchdown to make it look better. Right. right, you know that, and that was a huge, huge, huge disappointment for me and disgust for me because, look, you have. I, I pulled the numbers on the athletic budget when I wrote the column about it, and I don't remember yeah. the exact figure, but when you have, you know, 50-plus percent of, uh, or 50 times the budget of the athletic program you're playing, and in the last minute of the game when you can just ice it and essentially run out the clock, you go for that late score, dude, you're a piece of shit, bottom line. Uh, yep, agreed, agreed. And th- that was the biggest disappointment. Just like, out of respect for us, he could have run the clock and say, hey, you know, hell of a game. I think he wanted to save his job, but he was in a hot seat, make yep. it look worse than what it actually was. That's, that's all that situation was. Yep, and dude, he wound up getting fired. So the second that happened, I think every Colonel fan was just kind of like, good for you, Kevin. But um, no, going on with uh, with the Colonels, man. Um, you know, this year, I-, I guess, tell me a little bit about the vibe thus far among fans. Because I know you have a, a, a strong ear on the ground over there. But what's the what's the vibe this year? Like what what constitutes a bust season? What has to happen for this to be a good season for the Colonels? I think they want to repeat this conference champ. And I think the ultimate goal for Rebo this year is to get that top eight seed and have that first round by in the playoffs. And just imagine being off that first round and having a second round home game. Just imagine that excitement. That's the one thing Nichols has never done. And I know for a fact, talking to people within, that's his goal. That's the message. Like, look, we've we've achieved so much up to this point. But one thing we haven't done yet is get that first round by, have that second round home game win that game and get deep into the playoffs. And you make a deep playoff run with this team, anything can happen. Now, as we know, we can compete with the best. We've proven it. And uh, I think if we get that first round by and get that second round home game and from that point, from that point on, maybe third, fourth round, anything is possible. 
Absolutely. I mean, with with uh, Rebo thus far, I mean, let's look at this. He's played in three playoff games. He's got a win. And the two playoff games that they lost, they were all close one-score games, I believe. So, yep. I, and, I, what, South Dakota, was it South Dakota State was one of the losses? And then I can't. South Dakota was the first one. They came in and they, they that was the game that we got. The penalty the at the end, because yeah. Because of the crowd noise, no, do the crowd <laughs> noise. That, that was that BS. So yeah. That loss should never even happen. And then the second one was the last year in the second round against Houston, Washington. We actually yeah. led them ten nothing going into the second quarter. I think they had a block field goal, so they turned up a touchdown. That kind of changed the momentum. But yeah, that that was his second. I think Houston, Washington went almost all the way. Yeah. Last year, if I'm not mistaken, so that wasn't a bad loss. So. No, and I mean they're hanging with them, and the idea is to go in there and compete and not get the crap kicked off. Out of you and if you're competing and you're at least in a position at the end of the game you can hang your hat on that all day i mean this is once you get to the playoffs all these teams are pretty damn good so if, if as long as you're not going there and getting embarrassed especially at home you're fine so um if that top eight seed does happen dude that's gonna be holy crap that that next home game for the first playoff game is going to be insane um, and I, and I fully intend to be there. I think I've all, we've had what, two playoff games at home thus far, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I, I wound up going to both. So I don't see a scenario happening unless some crazy act of God happens and I can't make it. I I will absolutely be there if they make it to the, uh, get that top eight seed, notch that home, uh, playoff game. But, um, Let's let's talk a little bit about this. So we mentioned the 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 due to the crowd noise. Now, just to kind of paint the picture here for those listening, what happened was Nichols. It was late in the game. It was third down, I think. Yeah, it was it was third and long too. I think it was a third yeah. and thirteen or something like that. And the uh, the the South Dakota South Dakota snaps the ball and. Uh, their quarterback starts dropping back, and there was a guy's, a guy's going untouched to him too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there was going to be a sack on the play, and then all of a sudden whistles start flying in. So everyone's just kind of like, "Okay, cool, you know, dead ball file, no big deal, right?" Well, no, the ref turns on his microphone, looks at uh, the crowd to make the call, or looks looks at the press box, and says, "Due to the crowd noise, the quarterback couldn't hear the play replay third down." And After the, he snapped the ball, yeah. Yeah, the stadium just lost it. We're like, due to the crowd noise, what does that even mean? That's the idea of being at home. You're not supposed to hear. That should be a false start, if anything. So, anyway, they go on to convert, and they wind yep. up winning the game. And, of course, you know, that's a call that most of us won't forget. Um, but... The reason I bring that up is because you're also a Saints fan. We know about the no call. You're, oh man. You're also you're also now a high school official. One yes. of my takes with with bad calls, I I mean, of course, you want to do everything in your power to prevent them from happening. But at the end of the day, they're going to happen. But one of the things I don't like, and of course, you know, there's people we know on Facebook that still hang on to the uh Due to the crowd noise, it's actually become kind of a catchphrase for it the Colonels, and that's and and it's been 
taken from a negative and sort of turned into a positive in that light because right. it's like, okay, cool, we're lit. We can make things happen as the 12th man. But, right. but one of my contentions with this is, look, at the end of the day, one call, one play never dictates an entire an entire game in any capacity. So with you being a high school official, you're now on the other side of that. You're going to get the booze. You're going to get the, oh, come on, that was a shit call and everything in between. So talk a little bit about how that kind of came to be and how that's going. Well, I, I, um, I was, for the last 10 years or so, I was, you know, doing the sports training thing, stringing, covering high school sports. And I, and I, I, I sort of loved it, but over the last couple of years, the budget for some newspapers have kind of been cut to where they can't really employ many stringers anymore. So, you know, I was still missing the atmosphere on Friday nights, and I wanted something to just to kind of give me that feeling again. And I had some friends who were up, and like, you know, don't give it a shot. So I, I went to a couple meetings. I liked what I heard. I signed up, registered, everything. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. So now I'm in my first year. I saw my first on-the-field action. Last Friday, it's definitely different because it's, I mean, you're seeing things from a different perspective and instead of actually watching the game, you have to actually look for things on the field and, but it's all about knowing your position, knowing where you're at in the field, knowing what to look for. And, um, yeah, uh, coaches always want to hold on every play. They always want this and that on every play, but you have to control the flow of the game. You can't dictate a holding call on every single play because then you'll be playing until midnight. So it's, you know, it's basically they always say don't look don't look for the call let the call come to you to where let it be blatantly obvious to where you have to throw a flag don't sit there looking for something if you look for something in a high school game you're gonna see it every time yeah i mean you know with and that's also something i don't think gets brought to light enough because you see it on nfl sidelines all the time and this is just sort of me as a competitor i've never understood the all right, I'm going to fight for every single play to get a call. You mentioned high school officials looking for the holding calls, and in high school, it's a very imperfect game. It's a very unpolished yeah. game, so you can find that every play like you just said. But exactly. but even in college and the NFL level, you know, I think about guys like Jim Harbaugh who, oh, man, he's letting the refs have it all game, every game. It doesn't matter. The ref could be... It could be a 10-to-1 ratio in penalties in favor of the team he's coaching, but he's still letting those referees have it. And for me, you know, I've never been the type who has always gotten on an official's case, wanted this call or that call, because quite frankly, especially now I look at it, I couldn't do that damn job. I, I can tell you that tenfold, that I would not be able to be an official for any sport at all. I couldn't make a decision that quick. But, um, you know, you got these guys bargaining for these calls all game. And it's to me, it's just like, dude, take a step back because you know as well as I do that wasn't a hold or that wasn't a pass interference, but yet they're still bargaining for those calls. So you just got a lot of outside noise you got to ignore, and that's that's tough gig, man. Oh, it's tough. Like I said, the first time I was actually on the field was this Friday. They kind of threw me in the fire. I was an umpire. I didn't throw a flag. Mainly because <laughs> my, my read is the guard, the center, and the guard. And if they didn't false start or they weren't holding, I had no reason to, to throw a flag. Passing affairs is not my not my call. Uh, you know, encroachment is not my call. So I didn't. And after the game, they 
we had maybe nine flags total, so it was a very clean game. But a lot of guys, like, you know, we call it like helmet to helmets. We call it a holding if it involved like a guy getting choked or something to the ground yeah. or something like that. But other than that, but it's like if you let the kids play and the, the game flows so smooth, we were out there maybe two hours and 20 minutes. I mean, you were done. Both teams were satisfied. And there was no real controversy. So that's my thing. Is I, I don't go into a game want to throw a flag. I'm like, you made me throw a flag. So that's my, that's my <laughs> thing, you know? Well, it's funny because I play in a, uh, I mean, uh, this is obviously small scale, but I play in a men's pickup league and there, there's people on my team, or I shouldn't say pickup league, it's an organized, it's organized basketball, but it's a step above beer league. But there's guys out there, including a couple of people on my team, um, as well as guys on some of the teams we play who just let these refs have it week after week after week. And I'm just like, dude. They're they're doing this for their thirty five bucks and rolling, dude. Like <laughs> yeah. relax a little bit. But um you know, it's it's funny because in high school uh, I wanted to mention this. In high school I actually started the process. I had reached out because uh L, the high school I, I forget the organization name, but Louisiana high school refs needed yeah. needed needed more hands on the fields. So I had actually started the application process, I think when I was 19, I had just graduated high school uh, about a year ago, I was looking for a job, and uh, I had started that application process before, of course, getting the cold feet on it, and I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to be at this meeting, because quite frankly, I don't know that I could do it. I got a little scared, you know? Right, Um, right. It's, dude, it's intimidating, man, and like I said, I, I couldn't do it. My only experience officiating was uh, actually at a charity softball game that I kind of got thrown into the fire. <laughs> there was this charity softball tournament that I was playing in uh, for Anytime Fitness, and I organized the team. So I had talked to the person who organized the entire tournament. She was like, look, we had a couple of couple of umpires back out on us. We need help. Can you go umpire? I'm like, yeah, sure. It's slow-pitch softball. Good Lord, did I pick the wrong game to go and umpire because one of the teams was just – wouldn't shut up. There was a really bad call I made at first base, and I, I admitted that it was a bad call a couple innings later. But um, they started they started letting me have it after that. Dude, I wound up just walking off the field. I'm like, I'm not getting paid for this shit. Y'all can get fucked. Like, I don't care. And uh, I wound up leaving the field. Well, later in that tournament, apparently that team got into a fight with someone over first place. Like, legit. And wow. it was funny because I remember just walking off the field. Now these were like Kyle, when I tell you these were some some of the some of the cesspool of St. Charles Parish. You know, as I was the leaving, former athlete, the former baseball star, right. who would have probably the, the big thing in high school. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're all just running their mouths the whole time because we played them. I think in the first game we wound up losing, but dude, they were obnoxious, just like saying the worst possible things, even to some of the girls on our team. I'm just like, dude, y'all are pathetic. Well, yeah. when I umpired their game. Uh, I just remember leaving the field and one of the guys was barking at me and trying to intimidate me. And I was just like, dude, it must be tough, man. And he was like, what? I was like, knowing that you have nothing else to live for but a charity softball tournament, that sucks, man. I, I'm really sorry for you. And then I wound up leaving. But I was just like, dude, y'all are sad, man. So that's pretty much my experience. And that's where I drew the line. 
understand that. Because this is still an experiment thing. I mean, my first year, so kind of getting a feel for it. So far, I love it. And my mind could change. That's me. Week 10, yeah. my mind may change. But right now, it's a good thing. And I think it's good to have your younger guys do it. Because a lot of guys I ref with are older, and they can't do what they used to do anymore. So I, I think it's important just to stay involved, stay active, and uh as long as I'm not a white hat, because those guys are the ones that get the business from everybody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I don't mind being on the field, being the back on the umpire. When I'm on the field with like a line judge who's right on the sideline or, or the, the head ref. Those guys get earful. So they got to have really thick skin. And, it, it, you know, so you just brush that off. Okay, coach, whatever. Just walk away. You know, that's all you can do at that point. Well, you mentioned you mentioned a lot of the the older officials and things like that. One of the things that I don't think people understand about being an official is you do have to be in some sort of shape too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot of running back and forth, especially on long plays. You got to do your best to keep up with every single play, uh, depending on where you are in the field and what your position is as an official. But one of the things that I noticed so. Of course, right now we're in the hoopla with the Saints where everyone's railing on the officials and everything like that. But if you want to see bad officials, uh, I think it was Nichols' game uh, prior to Central Arkansas. Yeah. When I tell you, it wasn't necessarily the calls, but there were multiple times, and it happened both uh, against Nichols and against their opponents, where the refs were in the way on passing plays, almost setting an unintentional screen. Yep. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, dude, why are you on the field? You need to be in better position than that. Like, that was blatantly bad. And like I said, it wasn't anything that was detrimental to, you know, Nichols, it, you know, one way or another, because it it happened to both teams multiple times. And I'm just like, dude, what the hell? So if you want to start railing on officials for bad calls, this and that, Watch that game, and you'll see what bad officiating can really look like, I guess. And a lot of times, it's hard to predict where a ball is going to go, because some teams will actually use the official for that reason. So they try to tell you, if you read pass, take two or three steps up to where the receiver can't run into you. So a lot of times, it's just knowing your surroundings and knowing your awareness. And uh, like, for instance, when I was Friday night, any time I read pass, I was I ran up to the to the line of scrimmage, just so that I knew that there was a receiver coming across, he couldn't use me as a shield. Yeah. So it, it's basically just kind of understanding if it's run or pass, where to be, and just kind of being cognizant of your surroundings. And it's hard sometimes. It's such a fast-paced game, and I'm sure even college is even faster. The NFL, man, I, I feel for those guys. But it's just like, you know, it, it's just a matter of sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You just can't control it, you know. And one of the things I don't think people understand about officiating at the highest level is that door is ever-evolving. If you have a couple of bad games in a row, get ready, because you're probably getting demoted. Those guys, especially at the NFL level, are graded so harshly. And I think that's part of what just irks me about fans in general. I was watching, I actually just wrote a column about this, how it's tough for me to actually watch football with, with common folks now. And I don't want to say that in a in a stuck up sense but just the average fan and i was i was at a local restaurant for the saints game against dallas and there were two women sitting in front of me and every time there was a holding penalty on the saints 
They're sitting there flailing their arms, getting all crazy about it. And they showed three replays of three different holds the Saints have, and two of which were on Teron Armstead, where he has, I think it was Demarcus Lawrence, around the neck bringing him down. And they're like, how is that a hold? I'm like, how is that a hold? Because you don't know the rule book, so shut up about it. And then later in the game, by the time it got to the fourth quarter, I was just fed up. So I'm mocking all the people around me with the people I'm at the table with. And there was one point in the game, it was late, a flag gets thrown. One of these ladies starts screaming about it. Well, guess what? It turned out it was on Dallas. And she was like, oh, thank God. I was like, yeah, sit down, shut up, because you don't know what the call is. Just stop. And, dude, it drives me absolutely batshit crazy, which is why I watch games from the comfort in my home, of my own home and don't go to the Dome on Sundays as much anymore either. It just it drives me nuts. Right. And, and honestly, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who... who critique the rest at a certain time, especially in the crucial points of the game. I mean, obviously, now that I do it, I'm a little more forgiving, I guess. I can see how hard it truly is. But, like, you know, like you talked about the no-call last year. Yeah, it sucked and it hurt and it stung, but the Saints had opportunities in overtime to win that game, too. So you can't be just harping on just that as the reason you lost the game. And that's what people don't understand. It's like, yeah, the first person who, who will get the blame no matter what is the officials. I mean, no matter whether your team loses by 3, by 10, by 20, it's always the officials' fault. And that's one thing I've come to realize, too. It's like, hey, they, you're going to get the blame no matter what. Once high is going to be happy, once high is going to be mad, no matter what. So, Well, there are three positions in football that – the second your name gets called, chances are you're not doing your job. That is offensive line, cornerback, and, of course, the official. Yep. The offensive line, if your name's getting called, chances are you're giving up sacks or hits in the backfield. If you're a cornerback, you're getting beat because, let's face it, you're not getting six picks a game. Um, And then, of course, the official. Obvious reasons. But going back to that no call and talking a little bit about that, you know, it— Going back to what I said earlier in the podcast about it being, in the NFL, a 60-minute affair, one call can't possibly dictate the entire 60 minutes. And when people talk about the no call, the part that bothers me is there's no criticism on Breeze for the play before. When they had a run dialed up, he audibles because he saw an opening with the pass. Now, that audible was the correct call because he had Michael Thomas wide open on a slant route. But he throws it at Michael Thomas's feet. Feet, correct. And that would have been a touchdown. Michael Thomas had 11 yards of green ahead of him with no one in sight. So if that pass is just a little bit higher, Thomas is catching that and going all the way. We're not having the conversation about the no call. And that's part of what bothers me about that. There's too many factors that happen, ABC, throughout the course of a game that you can't just pick one single side of this or one single part of this and magnify it to the level that it did get magnified yes it was a bad call the nfl addressed that in the offseason with of course the pass interference uh being reviewable now so it's it happened it's done with they addressed it the nfl did their job period right and then one thing i'm not a fan of is 
this one idiot fan that keeps suing and bringing up losses. Like, oh my god! It, like let it go, man. Like at this point, like your, your team's three and one now. Enjoy it. Like now you bring up something about like sexual harassment or something, all kind of shit. I'm like, <laughs> man, let this shit go, bro. It, do you really think the Saints want to deal with it with a lawsuit or get the NFL and you're playing for the? I mean, no, just let it go. Move on. It's not going to change the outcome at this point. Right now, uh, kind of switching gears here. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you watch this. I want to talk a little bit about and dive into an industry you and I both talk a little bit about and are pretty fond of, and that's the world of professional wrestling. Oh, yes. Um, did you by chance catch, uh, AEW this week? I, I caught all three shows, and I thought AEW did a hell of a job. There was a couple little things that I, I, I thought they could have did better, but it was their first show, so, I mean, hey, give them a good for a first show. They absolutely killed it. But I also thought NXT did a hell of a job, too. NXT, I thought, brought it this week as well. Well, one of the things I want to talk about with AEW, kind of staying on the same page of officials, one of the funniest parts of the show was during the the Hangman Page and Pac match, um, where Pac, formerly known as Neville, wound up doing the low blow, the back heel yeah. low blow, and Earl Hebner, who has been doing... Uh, wrestling officiating for a Since long I was time. Like seven or something. Right. Yeah, I remember like, him when I was a kid, man. Absolutely. He was always in the brink of controversy when he was with WWE or WWF. Uh, yep. yep. Um, but he's one of the he's one of the the officials. Him and Charles Robinson, I feel like, are the two staples for our generation's uh, absolutely wrestling officials. Well, he's officiating that match and. Uh, Pac does the back heel low blow. Earl Hebner doesn't see it, but he sees Hangman Page holding his holding his groin, and Earl Hebner just gives him this look like, "Did you low blow him?" And Pac's just like, "No, no, I didn't. You didn't see that." <laughs> and it was one of my favorite moments, just because I'm like, "Dude, that's classic Earl Hebner right there. Like, it doesn't uh, uh, get any better." No, man, that was and that was quite a few little spots during that show, and then it just kind of brought you down memory. Lame, but Earl Hebner was one of those guys where there's something about Earl Hebner's slow count that gets oh, being I know. Pumped, up, pumped up every time. You know, like <laughs> he gets knocked out, all of a sudden he did the slow one, two, three, and it just—I don't know—he does it better than anyone, I find. Yeah, but uh, no, man, I uh, well, I already told you this week that as far as WWE is concerned, I'm done with it. I have uh, I have chosen my ship, so I'm either uh, I'm either gonna keep. R- Sailing smoothly, or I'm sinking with AEW. I'm all in on them, man. That's right. The only thing I really watched in on Raw is the Fiend. I think that's like the greatest thing they have on TV is yeah. what they're doing with him. So I do keep up with that, and I do watch NXT. I thought I think NXT is doing phenomenal things, and not if Finn Balor's back on there and uh, Ciampa came back. I think that show's going to get even better. But as far as you know, the, the SmackDown I thought wasn't. Are they great? A bunch of guys came back to legends for ratings, but you can only do that so many times. Yeah, you know. But I think it's now the best time to be a wrestling fan, honestly, because I mean we have so many options. Even with New Japan coming up and Ring of Honor, and now all this stuff. I mean, there's no better time to be a wrestling fan or an independent wrestler for that matter. Those guys are getting paid. Yeah, it's uh, well, you know, and a lot of that you can thank guys like Cody Rhodes who. He leaves WWE, and the independent scene is going to get a lot bigger now. Yep, um, yep. Because, 
because of guys like Cody Rhodes, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, all these guys who were, with the exception of Cody, I mentioned Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, those are guys who could have been in WWE a long time ago, but they chose not to. They they chose not to quote-unquote sell out. So, and they made... They made banks staying on the independent circuit. Now they're they're the faces of AEW. They're not just the faces; they're executives within AEW. Exactly. So they have very very good gigs right there. But um, I'm excited this week. Uh, uh, they they've announced a couple of matches that are going to take place. We're going to see uh, John Moxley back in action, which of course is awesome. It was cool to see him show up, and then. Um, but what I love about AEW is it has a very intricate feel of a balance between what WCW and WWF was during the Monday Night Wars. The presentation yes, is very much WCW, but the product itself, the matches, the high spots feels a lot like the Attitude Era. Um, yes. And one of those things, one of the big oh shit moments for me, of course, happened with Cody Rhodes and Sammy Guerva because they did a lot of spots from the top rope, and you just don't see that too often anymore in WWE. Um, They're also willing to push the envelope by allowing people to hit. uh, They they have spots where they use foreign objects off people's heads, which you don't see in WWE anymore. Hashtag thanks, Chris Benoit. Um, (laughs) Too soon? but Uh, Not at all. But uh, the big thing, though, was the the table spot with Dean Ambrose and Kenny Omega, or sorry, John Moxley and Kenny Omega, um, where he did the paradigm shift through a glass, glass table. Glass table, yeah, dude. Yeah. The second I saw that, I'm like, dude, this is episode one. Holy shit! Now, another quote I did see: WWE has kind of gone away from blood. And we've yeah. already seen a couple of matches before the launch of the weekly programming of AEW. They're not scared to use those tactics. But they did right. say, I saw Cody said, don't expect to see blood every week. But we're not going to shy away from it. So right. we're going to get some hardcore crap here. And I'm excited oh. about that. because, And especially having JR and Tony Schiavone on the mic again. Holy shit. Like, everything about this company excites me. I just can't wait for the day we hear, Oh, God! He's got the crimson mask! Oh, man. You know, it's coming. And, and, and good old JR, obviously, he's getting up there in age. Who knows how long he'll be doing this. But it's a joy to have him while he's, while he's still here, you know? Dude, he, uh, him and Tony Schiavone, man. It was, like I said... Just all the nostalgia you could possibly want in the first episode, just hearing those two. Because, I mean, JR, obviously, I think he's the god of commentary for wrestling. I mean, there's if you're setting the bar for yourself to be the best of all time, you have to surpass JR. Because, dude, he's got so many one-liners for days. I mean, of course, from the, the Hell in a Cell, oh my god, they killed him! To, you know, just... Oh, dude! From the to slobber knocker, just his cheesy coined Texas phrases. But and, and to me, I think the, the best thing about that show was the opening when Cody came out. His music hit, and he's seen the reaction of the fans. You can see him getting emotional. You can oh, tell dude. how much how much it meant for him to have this moment, and, and, and that's awesome. This is, I think, it's 
it's his lifelong dream come true. He's doing it for his dad. He's doing it. It's 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 amazing. Have you actually listened to uh, Cody's theme song, like lyric for lyric? Uh, not lyric for lyric, but I I have, I have like okay. I've so to it a few times. The reason I asked that is because. It's actually one of my favorite wrestling themes. I listen to it constantly, just on my own. It, it's by Downstate, who's a very popular band that does a lot of wrestling themes. Okay. Um, but the entire premise of the song is just one giant fuck you to WWE, which I think is awesome. Oh, I'm about to listen to it now. Yeah, okay. if you actually go listen to the lyrics, it's a very straightforward message because it's basically him talking about being essentially beat down by the machine that is WWE and now he's back he's here he's building his own kingdom and he of course has references to his father in there so <laughs> dude it's really cool so if you haven't listened to it like in full detail I'm at the yeah, yeah it's oh. it's dope but um no I uh going away from uh, all sports altogether let's get a little serious and nitty gritty here so you know Kyle and I reconnected, uh, as I alluded to earlier, I had wrote this big, long column about journalism, the state of it, what it did to me personally, um, and you would happen to come across that, and I, I had seen you pop up on Facebook before, I had heard your name in passing, because we know a lot of the same people through journalism. I knew right away who you were talking about, the minute I read the opening, it seemed like, oh, yep, and that's how I reached out, to like, dude, I... I, I feel your pain because I reached out to you the minute I read I'm like, this is what I went through. So you can go ahead and continue. Yeah, so, <laughs> and I got that message and I was like, dude, all right, cool, man. And we just kind of became friends after that. So, um, but long story short, I, I mean, dude, I was, I was driven to the point where I was working 14, 15 hours a day. You know, I'd get home, work didn't stop. And... Right. The days that I did get that break, come 10 o'clock at night, I had a six-pack ready for me. And this was an every-night thing, even while I was working. I was still writing while drinking. But I would I would down the six-pack, be completely shithoused, I'd wind up passing out. There were so many nights that I was sitting in the chair playing Call of Duty, and I'd wake up at 4 a.m., the game's still on, I have a beer spilled on the floor next to me, and I had just basically drank myself to sleep and passed out in the chair. Um, and there were so many nights like that just because I was miserable, dude. About and that all started probably a month in. There there were some warning signs in the very beginning that I didn't like. But, dude, it was bad. And, I mean, when you had reached out to me and told me you had a similar experience with this same person, just the the verbal abuse to the it's all your faults kind of ordeal even when it wasn't dude it was a nightmare man i'll tell you what i i won newspaper of the year two years in a row uh, sports poet of the year two years in a row i won like a first place for like a photography the same year and then i got let go like two months later because my writing wasn't good enough yeah so you know and, and when you hear that and it's, it's very 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 it's very just like the meaning and yeah it, and I love journalism, and I made a lot of met a lot of good people through it. But I think working at that one particular place is what kind of kind of made me shift because it wasn't fun for me at that point. You know, when you're getting 
told last minute to go out and get five people to answer a random question that nobody wants to answer. Yeah. But you can't come back and until it's done. It, it it takes everything away. It makes you feel like you can do nothing right. And that's that's how I felt working there, man. And I, I, the signs were there because they started letting other people go one at a time. And I knew I was next. And they brought my replacement in on my lunch break while oh, I was wow. on lunch to interview him. And I found that out through somebody that worked there that did a heads up. This is what's going on. So I kind of knew it was coming. Yeah. It didn't make it any better. But it is still the way they did it was really, really, really shitty. Well, that particular person that we're talking about here, so she point blank lied to me. So they brought in this new guy, and turns out he was a he was a drug head, which made it even better. Like showed up to work in a U-Haul van, like all kinds of other crazy things that happened. So I was just like, cool. Well, you traded me, who you maybe needed to work or thought you needed to work a little bit with, for someone who's an even bigger headache, but a better political writer. Good for you. So. They um, they bring him in, and I'm flat out told during a meeting with everyone that nothing changes, everything stays the course. They're bringing on one more additional writer. He can help with uh, the uh, government and school board coverage. And she looked at me, and she was like, you're going to stick with our lifestyle section. You've really hit your stride there. Good stuff, whatever. And then a week later... I'm uh, leaving on a Friday, and she says, hey, we need to go into so-and-so's office um, for a meeting. Okay, cool. Well, the second I heard that, I knew exactly what I was walking into because she had been harping me all day. Are my stories turned in? Is this turned in? Which I turned them all in, and in reality, I should have just held them. But um, we get called into the office, and boom, I'm let go. And then... This same person has the audacity to pull me into the conference room and say, look, this wasn't my call. I'm sorry. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, yeah, you're full of shit because they yeah. don't care what happens with their paper as long as it makes money. So Exactly. But And, dude, that's what she was, dude. She was just one of those people who she, she was manipulative uh, nothing was ever her fault. She never wanted to seem like the bad guy. She was the typical, I, I think SJW is the right word. She was the typical social justice warrior who would hide behind and say all these vile things behind her screen. But when push came to shove, if confronted, she couldn't hang at all. Right. And, and uh, she got a little dose of karma too for what I heard. So. Oh, yeah. It all goes full circle. So I mean, in the end, you and I obviously doing way better. And oh, without a doubt. Doing. So, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where I never had to talk to the guy who actually ran the paper until the day I was let go. So I knew it was him because he, as long as he was making money, he didn't care. Yeah. And the paper for the for what part was making some money, so yeah, everything was good. So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of manipulation, a lot of lies and it was not a good place at all and what sucks though is there's so many good people especially in that part of louisiana and south louisiana who there there were there's a lot of good people who were in there i mean i remember when i first graduated um i first graduated from Nichols. i was working for a radio station i was working for kxor just doing some commercial work one of my good friends trevor Trevor, yep. Yeah, I, I had a blast working with him, dude. And you, would, as a wrestling fan, you would have loved it just because the whole time we're cutting up commercials, we're also 
quoting tick for tack rock promos back and forth. So it was fun working for him. Uh, guys like Larry, who um, just good people who were always helpful. And then even going to the, the writing side of it and print side, you know, I met Brent. Brent interviewed me for a stringing position uh, with the Courier. So I covered Swampland Baseball. First game I covered, another person. I Isn't Thad your, is Thad your Dad. cousin? No, Thad, that's his old good friend of mine. Okay. He, he, and I, he and I connected that through Nichols. He used to be the SID when I was at the Nicholsburg. Okay, so okay. Associate. And then once he left, we kind of stayed in touch and... Yeah, I'm a real good friend now. Okay. So, yeah, Thad was the first person that uh, I basically shadowed, and he helped me out with uh, my first Swampland coverage because Brandon told me, hey, look, I got Thad going. He's going to help you out. Thad was cool as hell from the first time I met him, man. So there was a lot of good people I met, and then it all just came crumbling down the second I, I got this full-time job. And it was crazy because after it was all said and done, you know, once I had left, I had been out of work for a month, and I was trying to get a job with another publication, and then I had a job offer from, from Anytime Fitness. So oh, yeah. I had that decision to make of, okay, do I stay with this, the thing that I've been working my whole life for, or do I switch directions? Well, needless to say, I switched directions because, I, dude, I had done – this is how far I had fallen, I guess, in my uh, in confidence. So I had – a couple of test stories I had to do for before the uh, before they would offer the job. Cool, no biggie. So I wrote the these two stories, and the problem was when I wrote the two stories, dude, I was second guessing everything. It took me just as long. These should have been easy stories to write, easy six hundred word, thirty minutes if that, and. It wound up taking me about two to four hours to write both of these stories. And then after I wrote them, I'm just like, dude, I don't even want to do this. So I wound up taking another job. And then about a year later, I started the blog and everything. So I got back into the writing. But dude, if you get into the wrong situation with journalism, and one of my good friends and I talk about this all the time, if if a kid ever came up to us and said they wanted to be a journalist, would be like, yeah, well be prepared. I'm not going to blow sunshine and rainbows up your ass. The job, the jobs you're going to have to get to make it where you want to be are going to suck. Yep. And that, and honestly, they, they warned me about that in college. Like, you know, you, you're not going to make a lot of money doing this. And I didn't care. I would enjoy doing it. I'm going to go and work for the SPN, yada, yada. And I was <laughs> like, okay, looking back, you know, should, should do computers or some business or something. You know, like, man, but I have no regrets going into journalism because I've made so many great relationships to the process. And I think stringing kind of made me love it because I worked at my own pace, my own schedule and everything. So I think that's the way to go about it. As far as doing it full time for the small papers, it, it, it's it's hard to make a living. Especially if you have a family and kids, it's almost impossible. I know yeah. people have to get two jobs just to make ends meet. So it, it's definitely something that you got to have a passion for and it, it's rough it's very competitive field well that's the that's i guess one of the big factors that led me to any time when i made that decision too so i had i had just been engaged uh about a a little a little under a year prior to getting fired um and that was one of the big things is i don't know if i'd still be with my wife if i stayed in journalism because 
we on the weekends we were in the middle of renovating a house but at the same time you know there was no time for us and that was before kids before that time should be constrained you know we're we're young we should be going out enjoying ourselves the only time i enjoyed going out and doing anything is if i was going to a bar and getting hammered so i had a you know, I was just kind of a miserable person to be around at that point because she'd be like, hey, do you want to go out to dinner? No, not really. I'd rather stay home, play video games, and ignore the world. So, yeah. and that's what I did. So had I stayed in, I mean, dude, it would have been, like I said, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be in the relationship I'm in now. Not that it put a strain on us, but it would have eventually. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's key. It's all about being happy. And, you know, and now, I mean, I work 40 hours a week. I'm on Saturday, and I get off at 11 o'clock on Friday. So <laughs> can't beat life that. can't be any better. So I still have time to, you know, officiate on Friday nights. I can make the extra money after work. You know, I mean, I made extra 200-some dollars cash this last week doing two or three games. So to me, it's fun. It's a hobby. And then I told the courier learn basketball season or baseball season, if you need somebody, I don't mind helping you out. So I still have that option that will help them during the other season they need to so you know it's just me just the it's, it's about being happy and i wasn't happy working full-time being a journalist and there was multiple reasons why and it's just you know looking back on it now it's just like i think those experiences made me a stronger person today though oh absolutely man i think i think one of the the biggest safety nets that have happened for me personally is confidence just because that was the when I got let go of, that was easily, easily the lowest point that I, I think I've ever felt. So after kind of seeing seeing the downfall like that, I think as far as my confidence level goes, it's tenfold from what it was then. When I tell you I couldn't even begin to write a lead of a story, that's why I didn't write for a, a, the better part of a year uh, after I was let go, I just lost all that confidence, and that's coming from someone who writing always came came sort of easy for you know. It might not have always sounded the best, but I could put words to paper, no problem, and I I would go from there. But yeah, man, it's uh it was a tough gig, but uh other than that, man, let's uh we'll go ahead and wrap this up. But before we do that, uh. Colonels, what's the final prediction for the season? Well, after the UCA win, I don't see them having any more than one loss at conference. Just even that, I like it. Main, mainly because the rest of the schedule they got. I mean, Nice at home, mm-hmm. and we know they had that one circled because of Lance Gidry's comments last year. Oh yeah, even though he, even though he's not there any longer, that that's still gonna linger. Dude, you and, and I went off on Twitter on that guy. Man, it was great. But uh, but now that's southeastern, so you know. But but the, the rest of the, the toughest game on our schedule was that away game at Sam Houston. I think that that's because the way it went last year for them, you know, they'll have some revenge on their minds. Oh, yeah. so we can go, we can go in there, and even if we lose, I think we'll be okay. But if we can go in there and take that one, then I don't see us losing the rest of the way, honestly. But yeah. th- th- there was a loss in the conference schedule that would probably be the one I have circled would be that one. Yeah, it's uh Sam's always tough, man. I remember uh when I was working there, uh dude, they they 
they used to kick the crap out of us. And when I tell you, it wasn't like playing Stephen F. Austin where they're running a lot of hurry up with a lot of short passes and they can afford to get points because the clock stopped a lot. You know, like Tim Flanders was the running back at Sam and he would just completely tear up the defense. They would run all over us. There were multiple games where they hung 60 on us. So... And Sam's always going to be in the dogfight for the conference. So having them away, dude, if they notch that one, that's going to be a huge momentum swing for the rest of the season for sure. The thing about the South of Conference, though, man, top to bottom, is this is not the same old conference. Any one of those teams can make a run. I mean, yeah. last year we had three teams in the playoffs. So the South of Conference is probably one of the better FCS conferences altogether as far as a whole because – you got UIW coming up. Houston Baptist having a good year this year. I mean, Lamar made the playoffs last year. You got Sam, McNeese, Southeastern. Now Nichols is in the UCA. I mean, this goes on and on. I mean, any one of those teams can make a run. So we're going to be in dog fights from here on out. But we have the talent. We have the coaching staff and to do it. So I think we'll be okay. Now, this just popped in my head, and I just wanted to talk about this before we wrap up. Drew Brees, man, did you see he's throwing again? I, yeah, I think so. I saw that video. I, I think he's going to beat the timeline. Does he need to is my question. You have Jacksonville and Arizona coming up. That's the week. I think if Teddy beats Tampa Bay today, and he, I think you can roll with Teddy the next couple of games and save Breeze faster than by week, in my opinion. Now the question is, will he do that? Because I think you and I both know that. He's not. Yeah, Bree, Breeze is a competitor to a fault, which ultimately comes with ego. Even if he's 99.4%, and if one game met 100%, He'd still play, you know. Absolutely, and, and, and knowing the mentality of Breeze, he'll be playing before the bye week. Yeah, but, I mean, luckily, I mean the, the fact that you know Teddy gets so much hate is ridiculous. I mean, the man did what he had to do. He's, he's not a superstar quarterback, but he's a backup and he's right. doing his job. He's he's not gonna put up three hundred yards. He's not a Hall of Fame quarterback, but he's game managing, and that's the key. Our defense is good enough to win games. We got the guys around Teddy to win games. So I think we'll be fine. I mean, we've proven that we can win without Drew Brees for a few games and let Brees get 100% healthy. Dude, the, the, the fact they beat Dallas and then Seattle. And Seattle, I'm I mean, yeah. Now, granted, going into Seattle, I didn't mark it as a huge monumental win just because Seattle's played dog shit thus far, and they've – well, heading into that game they had. You know, they had a close win against Pittsburgh, close win against uh, Cincinnati – Right. It, it wasn't like they were they were doing what Dallas has and just skull dragging inferior opponents. They were barely right. beating them. So right. they go into Seattle, but playing in Seattle is always tough, especially with a new quarterback. So it's still a big win, but I I didn't look that at that as big of a game as Dallas. Dallas was the one during the stretch for which Breeze is supposed to be out that I said that's going to be the true test. And quite frankly, defense, you know, and, and yeah. it was. And that, and that was the game I honestly thought. I thought the wheels were going to come off in that one. I didn't think the Saints were going to win. I thought it was going to be an ugly 23-13 type game where Saints maybe get a late score to make it look closer. But I thought they were going to they were gonna get their uh, head handed to them in that one, and they didn't, dude. They, that team is good. That team is absolutely a Super Bowl contender once Breeze comes back, assuming Breeze is healthy. One of the things that I'm curious to see, though, so I've talked with you about this before with Breeze. 
as the season goes on, his production dwindles. It's been happening over the course of the last few years. He's had too many seasons where he's thrown 650 passes. He's been very pass-heavy. He's got a lot of wear and tear. Now that he's actually hurt, I think that could actually benefit the Saints in the tail half of the season because he won't have that normal wear and tear that he has. That that's the key, I think. I mean, we saw it last year because you can see from week one to week sixteen, his his deep ball wasn't the same, and I think that arm strength over time wears out. But just in these games, like you said, I said the same thing. This could be very beneficial for the Saints. As like you going this home stretch of the playoffs, you're gonna have a Breeze who played eleven games as opposed to a Breeze who played sixteen games. Absolutely, those five games make a difference. I mean. When you throw the ball 30 times a game, I mean, that's a lot of passes that you're leaving on the table for uh, for five games. So it's going to be interesting. But right now, man, Saints are, uh, Saints are looking damn good. And once they get Breeze back, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that they're, uh, right now, they're a top three team in the league, uh, of course, with the Patriots and then Chiefs, which luckily are both in the other conference. Exactly, exactly, and, and that's the key. And and, and the the NFC South being down this year, oh yeah, helps as, helps as well too. Because now you don't have to rush Breeze back. Because like Atlanta's tanking, the Bucks the Bucks are still not quite what they need to be. And then the, the Panthers don't have Cam, so I think now is the best chance to take full advantage of that. Absolutely, and this was a year that I thought the NFC South was gonna explode and be a tough tough division. However, it seems like the uh, NFC North and the NFC West are going to be the ones that explode. So that bodes well for the Saints. <laughs> Absolutely. The key is trying to get that home field in the playoffs. So that goes a long way. Absolutely, man. But uh, no, nah, man, I appreciate you coming on, Kyle. And uh, good luck with uh, the rest of the season as uh, your inaugural season as an official. Appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me on, man. Fun time. Absolutely, man. And I will see you for the next Nichols home game, brother. Absolutely, bro. Hi, man. Later. Thank you for tuning in to the Hotard Huddle Podcast. Stay up to date with all the latest episodes released on the 1st and 15th of every month at hotardhuddle.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hotard Huddle.